From the studios of EWTN, this is Open Line with today's host, Father John Tregilio. In North America, call toll-free 1-833-288-EWTN. That's 1-833-288-3986. Outside North America, call 1-205-271-2985 or send an email to openline at EWTN.com. A tremendous Monday to each and every one of you. Thanks so much for tuning in to EWTN's Open Line Monday, live and in living color for a change. Uh, All of the holiday festivities on Sundays this year have kind of uh, put us out of business on our normal live Monday visits with Father John Tregilio, but we are back in the swing of things today. So if you'd like to speak with Father John, the number is 833-288-EWTN. That's 833-288-3986. Wide open phone lines for you. If you're outside the United States and Canada, we'd still love to hear from you. That number is 1-205-271-2985. And we'll even put you straight to the front of the line at 1-205-271-2985. You can always send us an email. That email address is openline at EWTN.com. I'm Jack Williams, Michael McCall producing the program. Your call screener is Matt Kubensky and Jeff Burson handling our social media efforts. So if you're watching us on YouTube or Facebook Live, you can type a question into the chat window and it may find its way to us by the end of the program. And our host is he is every Monday, Father John Tregilio. How are you? How about try that again, Father? Oh, I'm I'm fine. Can you hear me? Yeah, yeah, you're good. We're going to go ahead and start the show now, Michael. If that's all right with you. <laughs> uh oh. <laughs> oh goodness gracious! First time out of the gate live on a Monday for all of us, so we're yeah. uh, we're easing back in here. Um, so, Father, not only is this the first time we've been live in uh, a few weeks, but it's the first time that we've been live since the passing of. Uh, certainly, without argument, one of the greatest um, theological minds on earth that the church has ever known, and um, and really that just kind of scratches the surface uh, of the depth of a, of just a human being that uh, Pope Emeritus Benedict the Sixteenth was, huh? Oh, absolutely. Uh, I, I couldn't say it better. Uh, he was the equivalent intellectually of St. Thomas Aquinas and St. Bonaventure. And uh, I think his legacy is going to be appreciated well, well into the future. Um, unfortunately, um, I think the, the, the press just, you know, overlooked all his great qualities. And, you know, he falls in the footsteps of, of the giant himself, John Paul the Great. But Benedict himself was is no slouch. Uh, you know, his brilliance, especially in terms of tying together doctrine and liturgy. I think that's the greatest gift of the many he left behind is that we can appreciate Lex Orande, Lex, uh, Lex Credendi, that you know how we worship uh, ties into what we believe and vice versa. 833-288-EWTN is our toll-free number. It's a free telephone call. 
anywhere in North America, pick up the phone and give us a call. I know you're out of practice on doing that on Mondays, but give us a call at 833-288-3986. We've got an email from Rick that I want to read to you, Father, as much for the fact that it's just... I can I can relate to how Rick's feeling here, and he just kind of lays it out okay. <laughs> exactly how he's feeling here. He says, why do the U.S. bishops insist on parking a holy day on January 1st? <laughs> Years ago, January 1st was the Feast of the Circumcision, then it changed to the Feast of the Holy Family. Now it's the Feast of the Mother of God. Uh, less than another holy day dedicated to Mary back on December 8th. Why does January 1 have to be a holy day of obligation? Well, we have so few. <laughs> I mean, we went from 10 to 6. And uh, I mean, I understand people's, uh, it, it's a mysterious holy day because as the call, as the writer points out, you know, it was the Feast of Circumcision. Now it's uh, Mary, the Mother of God, and, uh, you know, even World Day for Peace. Um, of all the holy days that, uh, you know, that are there, it's right a week after Christmas, Christmas, you cannot change, thank goodness, uh, unlike some <laughs> of these other ones. Like Ascension Thursday, it's 40 days, it's in the Bible, and now it's been moved to, to Sunday. Um, but the, the inconvenience of getting to church today, I find incredulous, because people drive so far to go to anything else, to go shopping, to go do their banking, uh, to go eat, so it's not a hardship as it was in olden days when you had to go by horseback or something like that. Or like when we were growing up, we had to walk to school, you know. Um, so I, I don't – I really don't have the, this uh, desire to push the bishops to make it optional. Uh, if anything, you know, I, I think we should keep all ten holy days because uh, like the, our Jewish brethren, um, you know, our, our people who are of the, of the Islamic faith – they have no problems, you know, having sacred time as well as sacred space. So as Catholic Christians, I don't know why we're more, you know, slaves to the to the contemporary culture. Don't don't we, you know, I'm not trying to be facetious by any means, but don't we have, you know, at least 9,000 years of human history that would suggest to us that humans respond best when they're challenged? Exactly. And if the more you you cater to convenience, you know, because I know I can see people saying, "Well, why do we Christmas?" All right, I could see them never wanting to touch that because it's been etched into everybody's uh, ethos that you know December twenty fifth. But um, you know, they're arguing about Easter again, uh, Macra conception. Um, you know, religion is about challenge, uh, not just for the sake of challenge, but because it makes us better people. Uh, Gus writes in, "What are the signs of the end times, and how should we prepare for it?" Well, the signs of the end times, you know, um, according to the, the catechism and the consistent teaching of the church, is that uh, no one knows the day nor the hour. Jesus said that himself uh, in sacred scripture. So no one, anyone who tells you or any private revelation that tries to attempt to say it's this particular day uh, is completely wrong. However, Jesus said you will see there will be trials and tribulations, certainly the, the four last things, um, as opposed to the four last things of an individual, but the four last things of all human history. Uh, you're going to have the end of the world, you're going to have the second coming of Christ, the resurrection of the dead, and general judgment. Those four things, when those are happening, then you know 
the day of reckoning is upon you. Everything else, you know, uh, is speculation. And really, our primary focus should not as much be the coming of Jesus as the departing of us, huh? That's correct. Your your particular judgment decides where you're going to spend eternity. General judgment is just an affirmation of everybody's particular. So it's not an appeal. It's not like going to the Supreme Court and someone's going to pop out of hell or get kicked out of heaven. All right, here you go. Elisa, rubber meets the road. My son asked me three questions below, and I don't have the answers. Can you please help me? <laughs> okay. Number one, why is there no story or anything about Jesus during his teen years? Okay, that's why it's called the hidden years. We know nothing, not because nothing happened, but it's a very private time. Uh, Jesus, for 30 years, other than you know his, his day when he was, those three days when he was in the temple at the age of 12, that's very personal time that he spent with Mary and Joseph, and there's just no uh, oral or written documentation or tradition of what happened. And the Gnostic Gospels, like the Gnostic Gospel, um, you know, uh, that are, of Thomas alleges that he did certain things. Well, the Church never gave credence to that, so we don't know. Number two, why they named him Emmanuel, but we call him Jesus. Well, Emmanuel was not his proper name, uh, you know, in, especially in Jewish tradition, uh, you know, names have specific meanings, uh, but the angel specifically said you will name him Jesus. So that's his proper name. Emmanuel is more of a title. And lastly, why Jesus was Jewish and we are Catholic and not Jewish? <laughs> Well, he started out Jewish, yes, because <laughs> uh, he's the fulfillment of of the uh, of the law. Uh, the, he's is the one who completes the the old covenant. Um, but we remember it, it, Christianity was a part of Judaism uh, for a while after Jesus rose from the dead and ascended into heaven, and then the Holy Spirit came at Pentecost. Uh, Christians were considered. And I, I use this term, you know, gingerly, Jews for Jesus. <laughs> uh, they were they practiced the Jewish faith, but they were also people who believed that Jesus was truly the Christ, the Savior, the Messiah. Uh, after the Temple of uh, Jerusalem was destroyed by the Romans, uh, the Jewish leaders, Jewish religious leaders, kicked Christians out of Judaism. So by um, you know 100 A.D., uh, Christianity, uh, Catholic Christianity in particular, is a separate religion. 833-288-EWTN is our toll-free number. Pick up the phone and give us a call. 833-288-3986. It's Open Line Monday with Father John Tregilio. This is Open Line on the EWTN Global Catholic Radio Network. If you have a question, call 1-833-288-EWTN. That's 1-833-288-3986. Outside North America, call 1-205-271-2985. Or send us an email to openline at EWTN.com. You know, we've got a great new item at EWTN's Religious Catalog. It's a beautiful painting, uh, a print of a painting called Madonna of the Streets. This is a custom color print of the painting Madonnina, originally painted by Roberto Ferruzzi, and it is commonly known as the Madonna of the Streets. It's an 8x10 print. It's displayed under glass. 
uh, has a gray tinted mother of pearl wood frame with an oxidized silver lip. It's really gorgeous. It's a lovely image and it comes with a wire hanger on the back. It's ready for hanging. Overall, it's 13 by 11, 11 rather by 13 inches and it's made right here in the United States of America. It's available now at EWTNRC.com, where they're offering free standard shipping on online orders of $75 or more. Standard shipping in the continental U.S. only. Use the code FREE at checkout. 833-288-EWTN is our toll-free number. Three lines filled, three lines open. Give us a call at 833-288-3986. Uh, Tom in Twinsburg, Ohio, uh, wants to know, why did Jesus act so bigoted to the Canaanite woman? She had to ask for the crumbs that fell from the table. Yes, well, at first appearance, it looks like he's being mean to her. But being the savior of the world and he's all compassion and love, it's the context. And, you know, you have to always take scripture in context uh, look at the whole story, not just that one little uh, exchange they have. He's saying what is in the mind of most of the uh, Israelites at that time. They look down their nose at Canaanite uh, people. They're they're completely, you know, the separate groups. But he challenges her to persevere, and so it's almost it's almost like those Socratic dialogues that people. Uh, are familiar with. Uh, it's an exchange that Jesus calls her out of her shell, so to speak. And so he's not being mean. What he's doing is asking her to hang in there. And obviously he shows her great compassion uh, at the end of the story. So it's not that he's having a bad day and it's not that he's uh, prejudiced or biased uh, against her, but that this is part of the process of, in, in, in the sense of moving her beyond her limitations and boundaries, and in the same way, challenging uh, the Israelite people to do the same. 833-288-EWTN is our toll-free number. It's a free phone call anywhere in North America. 833-288-3986. First up today is Peggy, a first-time caller in South Carolina, listening on Sirius XM Channel 130. Peggy, thanks for calling. You're on with Father John. Well, hello to Father John and John Williams. I must say, John Williams, I met your wonderful wife and have learned so much, and I'm enthralled with her, as as I know you are. <laughs> I am indeed. You know, and it's funny, Peggy, because there was a uh, there was a, a young lady that I grew up with as a child uh, in suburban St. Louis named Peggy, and I remember I was over at her house oh. over at her house during the summer once. And she did something that got under her mother's skin, and her mother said, <laughs> Margaret Ann? And I thought, what in the world is she talking about? And that's the day that I learned that Peggy was a nickname for Margaret. <laughs> well, I'm Margaret Mary, and I only got called that if I was in trouble. Yeah, so that's, I, that's, I understand. that's my point. <laughs> go, go ahead <laughs> so, with your question, you Peggy. For, yes. I've always wondered, where did the baptism come from? Why did St. John decide to dunk people? and ask them to repent. What was his motivation and, or inspiration to start baptizing? Okay, that, that's a very good question. Um, certainly, <clears throat> we have to make the distinction that what John did was not the sacrament, but Jesus made it a sacrament by allowing himself to be baptized, and it's a symbolic gesture until after our Lord then 
commissions his apostles to go baptize the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. So John, where he got this from, uh, certainly he's inspired by the Holy Spirit to do this. This was not merely something he came up with on his own. At the same time, um, there's no indication that uh, he got a special message uh, other than he felt this was the proper thing to do. And just like with the inspiration of the uh, sacred authors, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, and so forth, at no point do they say, did I hear a voice tell me to do this or do that? Um, so their free will is always intact, and John may not have known that he was inspired, but John, being uh, the, the last prophet of, of, the, uh, of the Bible, would certainly be very faithful to doing what, and so I'm sure he was morally convinced that this is what God wanted him to do. Does that help, Peggy? Yes, thank you very much. You're very welcome. God bless you. We appreciate the call today. 833-288-EWTN. Still a couple open lines at 833-288-3986. Next up is Josh, a first-time caller from one of America's hidden treasures, Boise, Idaho, listening on Salt and Light Radio. Josh, you're on with Father Trujillo. Hey, you're not supposed to tell people we have plenty moving here already. <laughs> um, well, thanks for taking my call and giving me the time. Um, so I'm going to try and make this as clear as possible. Um, so I'm Catholic. I was talking with one of my Protestant friends. Um, we're all you know, good terms and whatnot. But he asked me about saints and what we think about saints. And, you know, I, I think that as Catholics, we more think of saints as canonized uh, saints or people who live, um, you know, live live correctly and were able to be in heaven and so the definition for me would be more clear of somebody that's in heaven is a saint and he pointed out um bible verses like in acts i think it's chapter nine and plenty of other ones referring to living people as saints and um he just kind of asked me what i thought about that and i didn't really know and told him i'd kind of research it and so i'd like to see if i get a little more understanding on uh, the definition of saints and to be more ecumenical with his, his uh, understanding as well Okay, and certainly, you know, even in our Carmen parlance, uh, people refer to, like when Mother Teresa was alive, you know, they often would say, you know, she's a living saint. But theologically and canonically speaking, no one could be a saint until you're dead. <laughs> saint means, like you pointed out, means the person is in heaven. A canonized saint is one that's been recognized officially, publicly, uh, by the Church, particularly through the Roman pontiff. But anyone in heaven... Uh, any human being is a saint if they're in heaven. They don't have to be canonized, so it's not just those people that the Church has declared. Um, but anyone else, because uh, even Scripture refers to um, other people like the you know angels sometimes being just messengers, uh, we want to be precise in theological language. Uh, I see no problem in that the Church has the authority to declare um, particular people to be recognized as saints, because Jesus gave the keys to Peter, where whatever you declare bound on earth is declared uh, bound in heaven, and, and whatever you loosed on earth is loosed in heaven. That full authority given to Peter is then handed on to his successors, and that's why the Pope and the Pope alone, uh, it's an invocation of, of, of papal infallibility, theologians uh, re regard, that when a Pope declares someone uh, canonized a saint, but like I said, you've also had uh, no one. There was no canonization process 
for Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, uh, the church as a whole regarded them uh, as being in heaven. But we speak of today of living a saintly life. Uh, that's uh, an adverb. It's it's not uh, a, a, an adjective itself. The adjective is when you are in heaven. So I know some of our non-Catholic friends have difficulty with the idea of saints, but saints are merely people in heaven who then intercede for us. They intercede to the one mediator, Jesus Christ. But we regard them as, as sort of like heroes in the same way, you know, we have sports heroes, we have uh, heroes of history. You go to Washington, D.C., a lot of people are going to be going there next week for the March for Life. You see statues of Thomas Jefferson and George Washington and, and uh, Ben Franklin. These are people that we honor and respect because of the, you know, the, the, the legacy that they leave. So their images are not considered idols. Neither are the statues of saints considered idols. We're just honoring these people that we believe are friends of God. What about this notion of uh, St. Paul and other of the New Testament writers referring to those they're writing to as saints? Is that a translation issue? It's, it is a translation issue because, uh, you know, you're reading it in the English. You, when you go to the original Greek, especially um, the, the biblical Greek, uh, there's more than one definition. I mean, you get your Greek dictionary and you'll see that uh, in the same way that you and I would use that word saint— so we're not there it's not restrictive as it is as it would be today especially if you're asking a theologian or a canon lawyer does that help josh at all yeah yeah that clears it up a bit i guess yeah i was just kind of thinking more of you know you know i think it is an act but in other places saint paul says and i'm writing to the you know the the saints in wherever that was so i guess how do i answer what the saints mean and whether we yeah i just think he's talking about people who are living yeah, and it's 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 a it's a figure of speech, in the same way Jesus when Jesus said, "Unless you hate your mother and father, you can't be my disciple." Well, it's a figure of speech. He didn't mean it to be interpreted literally. You know, and and Luke and the other writers also didn't in their time have terms like Christian to throw around. That's right. They didn't, the 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 the, the uh, moniker of Christian was after the sacred authors. God bless you, Josh. We appreciate the phone call today. Next up is Jesse in San Antonio, Texas, listening on the EWTN app. Jesse, you're on with Father Trujillo. Yes, uh, good afternoon. Go right ahead with your uh, question. Yes. The question I have is, I listen to the Rosary and the Chapel of Divine Mercy on uh, YouTube on my phone. On a daily basis, is that the same as praying it daily? Or and I, I participate. Yep, you better believe yes. it. Yes, yes. If you participate, uh, you you are actually doing it. Uh, some people, you know, they like that antiphonal response where uh, you know one person does one part and another person the other part. So even though you're not doing it all by yourself, completely. Um, exclusively, that would still be praying it, okay? And if some pe- some people are unable to communicate, because some people don't aren't able to speak, um, just by listening, if they meditate on what's being said, that's prayer. That's mental prayer. And God's big enough to give full credit for everything. Oh we, yeah, that, you know, that, you know, you'll, we'll get questions every once in a while. Yeah. You know, if if I have four intentions instead of one, do they only get twenty five percent consideration? Yeah, you know, you, things you, like you this. You can't quantify grace. 
Very good. Thank you so much. Straight ahead, we're going to talk to Aaron in Houston, Texas, and we've got plenty of time for your phone calls as well. Pick up the phone and give us a call at 833-288-EWTN. It's a free telephone call anywhere in the United States and Canada. That's 833-288-3986. It's EWTN's Open Line Monday with Father John Tregilio. This is Open Line on the EWTN Global Catholic Radio Network. Still a couple of open lines at 833-288-EWTN. That's 833-288-3986. Straight back to the phones we go. Aaron, as advertised, is in Houston, Texas, listening on iHeartRadio. Aaron, thanks for holding. You're on with Father Tregilio. Hey, Father. Thanks for having my call. Thank Uh, you. Mike. My question is, um, I, I've, I've gotten into my rosaries so incredibly hard that I'm breaking them. But, so I decided I wanted, <laughs> wanted more. I've gone through six so far. You know, it, I have a metal one now, and it, it's holding up. But uh, I, I recently got the uh, Seven Sorrows of Mary rosary. Yes. And I cannot find the proper method in literature form on how to pray it. So okay. I don't want to do it wrong, but yes. I, I can't, you know, I, in churches I've visited, they don't know about it. They don't have any literature about it or anything. It's like, like it's unknown. I don't know why. Well, it's, it's not as familiar as the, um, Dominican Rosary, which is what most people have in their possession, and that's even that is an abridged version because you only have the five mysteries um, on the one that most people have today. The original one that St. Dominic had and that Dominican uh, priests and nuns wear uh, has 15 uh, decades on there. What you're talking about is the, the chaplet of Our Lady of Seven Sorrows, and it uh, has seven beads for the uh, and seven groups for the seven sorrows uh, of our Blessed Mother. You can go online and find the uh, the proper prayers. And basically, it's just Hail Marys and Our Fathers. And you meditate not on the mysteries of the rosary as people know it today. You meditate on the seven sorrows with each grouping. And if you go online, you can find the... Um, and I think EW10 even has this. In well, the yeah, I can give you a great resource. Uh, good friend of the network, Immaculate Ilibagiza, who is a uh, uh, you know, famous refugee who came to uh, the United States. She has a website called immaculate.com, I-M-M-A-C-U-L-E-E.com. And she has a beautiful uh, treatment of the, uh, the Rosary of the Seven Sorrows. She has uh, illustrations and everything of exactly how to pray that. U-L-E-E. Yes, I M M U. I'm sorry, I M M A C U L E E dot com. And it's the seven. It's the seven Servites who actually promoted that devotion. Uh, there, there's a national shrine in in Chicago, and um, you know they they were seven Florentine merchants who formed the religious community, and that's where the 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 chaplet 
uh, of Seven Sorrows comes from, as well as the black scapular that goes with it. And, and you know, and also you may, I know in, in St. Louis growing up as a boy, we had Seven Holy Founders Parish, and I don't know if there may be a parish under that patronage in the Houston area, but they may have uh, information on that uh, as well. Thanks, Aaron. We appreciate the phone call. 833-288-EWTN. That's our toll-free number. It's a free phone call anywhere in North America. 833-288-EWTN-3986. Uh, Chuck says, is the anointing of the sick equivalent to the sacrament of baptism where it forgives all sin and punishment? Well, anointing the sick will forgive sins that a person is truly sorry for, but is unable to express that sorrow through the sacrament of penance and reconciliation. So as a priest, um, when I was hospital chaplain or as a parish priest, uh, if someone was particularly either um, unconscious or unable to communicate, um, that's why the, the sacrament of anointing a sick can never be done by a deacon, because they don't have the... the uh, the power or authority to forgive sins, and that's part of the sacraments. It's anointing with the hope of maybe getting better, but also preparing yourself for the final judgment. And also, if there are any um, un unconfessed sins that need to be taken care of. Now, if a person has no sorrow in their heart for some sins that he didn't confess, then this is not uh, going to, to do that. But similar to baptism, uh, you know, like the, obviously a person has all their sins washed away in baptism. In anointing the sick, it's all sins that a person is truly sorry for that they have not previously confessed. And um, uh, we want people to realize that it's very important that you call the priest and not just wait to the very last moment because he might not get there in time. All right, Father, we're going to put your decades of pastoral experience to the test here. EJ is watching us on YouTube, and he says, I want to know what to do when a family sits next to you at Mass and doesn't quiet their chattering children. <laughs> it seems rude to get up and move, but I don't want to go through this frustration again. And I'm not talking about babbling babies, but children talking in full voice about their dolls and whatever pops into their heads, and the parents never quieting them at all what to do. Well, one, you're allowed to move. That's not, it's not forbidden. It's not like you have an assigned seat like on the airplane. Uh, you are allowed to move. Or if you can't, because let's say you're stuck in the middle of the pew and there's just no other seats, you offer it up. I mean, I as a pastor, um, you know, understand that uh, some people, they, they, they want to be able to hear the Mass. They want to be able to participate fully. And sometimes the kids, whether they're infants or toddlers or teenagers, and yet we want families to come to Mass. So I don't want to be of the persuasion where priests start shushing people and telling, you know, uh, quiet down. But you can, as an individual person, like I said, just very quietly, nonchalantly, move to another spot, you know, pretend like you got to go, um, you know, visit the restroom and then find another seat. You don't have to tell anybody why you're moving. You don't want to give dirty looks to anybody or make noises like, oh, like some people do. Um, but if you can't move, offer it up and be grateful that that person had those children and they didn't abort them. Signs of life, right? Sounds of life. That's right. Uh, next up is David. He's in Spokane, Washington, listening on our great affiliate Sacred Heart Radio. David, thanks for holding. Welcome to the program. Hi. 
Um, Father John, I basically want to mention that I received Catholic instructions from a priest, and he, on the bulletin board of the Church, uh, put up a, a paper flyers requesting that people who claim to be victims would come to the Church and sign up to be part of the lawsuit against the priests. I believe the priests should have been—all of the priests alleged in this should be charged with criminal crimes. Anyhow, um, he said during the Mass that um, he didn't want it to be included him in it, because some people said that they wanted to include him in it, and he said, don't include me also. I have some people that move next door, and they claim they have taken money from the Catholic Church under the pre-sex scandal, and that they totally lied. There's way too many priests. One particular priest that... Yeah, that so, was, Father, what, what about the, the whole aftermath of, uh, of the couple of iterations of the uh, clergy abuse scandals here in the United States? Yes, I mean, we we went through a very terrible one in Pennsylvania, a grand jury report that, uh, you know, went through, over, covered over 100 years and all eight dioceses of Pennsylvania. Um, I personally know for a fact that, yes, there were horrible, heinous things done by priests uh, to children, to adolescents, to adults, and any case of, uh, of abuse is reprehensible. I also know that there were some priests who were falsely accused. Um, that's the case in almost every other walk of life. You've got doctors, lawyers, police, moms and dads, teachers, coaches, and so forth. Uh, some were falsely accused. We have those who were guilty and were never brought to justice. Um, I would, you know, uh, I, I let the courts decide that. And, uh, you know, we as Catholic Christians need to pray for justice, and we also need to make justice on both sides, certainly foremost justice for the victims, but also justice for those who are accused, because it's now part of canon law. It was never emphasized and made emphatic until recently by Pope Francis that you're innocent until proven guilty. And that's the hallmark of our American jurisprudence uh, civilly, and, and it is now also canonically. And I think morally speaking, that uh, if someone's not yet been proven guilty, you know, they need to be given the benefit of the doubt. And yet, if they are guilty and been proven guilty, then swift and sure uh, punishment needs to be done. Uh, next stop for us is Sun City West in the great state of Arizona. Rhonda is a first-time caller listening on Iowa Catholic Radio Online. Rhonda, you are on with Father Trujillo. Hi. So nice to talk to you. Thank you. Um, I have a question about the timeline. Um, it's very confusing. Um, first we have Jesus is born, and then we have the wise men come, and then the escape, but... Somewhere in there, he has to have the presentation in the temple, and then they go to Egypt, and then they go back to Nazareth. And I just, the timeline doesn't make sense to me. I was wondering if you could explain it to me. Okay. Well, part of the confusion is because we have different Gospels giving us different uh, aspects of, of that timeline. So there's not just one. you got Matthew and you have Luke, and from both of them, then we piece together uh, the timeline. But... Uh, each gospel writer, Matthew and Luke, are writing for a specific audience. And so Matthew, who's writing for a Jewish audience, is going to be paying much more attention and detail to those things that show that Jesus is the fulfillment of the prophecies of the Old Testament. Whereas Luke, who's writing for a Gentile audience, 
is going to not be as, you know, um, preoccupied with, with that. Um, there is no um, one single chronological order that we find in any of those texts, but we put all, both of them, but also we have from sacred tradition as well as from sacred scripture. And so we believe that the proper timeline is what is commonly known that, you know, Jesus was born in Bethlehem. Uh, you know, when, when did the three kings arrive? Um, that, you know, we, we celebrate it on January 6th, but did that actually take place on that particular day? Maybe, maybe not. Uh, then they had the flight. Certainly the flight into Egypt must have taken place after the, uh, the, the visit of the Magi because they had to stay for a while in Egypt and then bring Jesus and Mary and Joseph out of Egypt. And remember, they couldn't go to the, um, um, back to the, the city because uh, Herod's um, uh, relative was in, is in charge. So they end up in Galilee in Nazareth. So the confusion, as St. Augustine said, is not because of Scripture. It's because of our improper interpretation of Scripture. Does that help, Rhonda? And they, have, they have to be present, presented at the temple in a certain amount of time, too, and that was fulfilled according to... It just, yeah, for me, it's just very confusing to understand all the sequence of time. Then we had the massacre of the innocents. And... Yeah, see, and, and the, the thing is, when Matthew and Luke are writing... They're not writing it as a police report, and so their reporting of the of the of what took place, um, you know, they're using. Uh, I'm, I don't want to say different timelines, but how they tell it's like how you tell a story is different. How I tell the story, even though the story is true, what I think is important and what I emphasize will be different than from yours. So the exact precise day, moment, and sequence may be different. Uh, but it's it's still inspired text. 833-288-EWTN is our toll-free number. It's a free phone call anywhere in North America. 833-288-3986. Be sure to check out Women of Grace tomorrow morning, 11 a.m. Eastern Time, right here on EWTN Radio. Um, James writes in, I'm a convert, and I want to know how Jesus can say, this is my body, while he was still alive. Did he transubstantiate at the Last Supper? <laughs> well, uh, we certainly believe that that was the first Mass, so to speak, and that uh, that actually the apostles were ordained at that moment, and that that was the first Mass. So what they did, they received Holy Communion. Um they're not eating the historical body of Christ, but they're certainly receiving the, the true, real, and substantial body of Christ in the same way that we are. Uh, there's the historical body of Jesus that's glorified in heaven, and then there's the transubstantiated body that we receive in Holy Communion, which is the same that the apostles received at the Last Supper. 833-288-EWTN is our toll-free number, 833-288-3986. Victor wants to know why Catholics believe that salvation comes through baptism. Because Jesus said so. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, you know, he made it very clear, unless you're born again of water in the Spirit, and he told the apostles, you know, go and baptize all the nations. So uh, we believe, you know, scripturally, 
but also by sacred tradition. And this was affirmed by, you know, councils of the church. And it's certainly part of the, um, the current magisterium that's in the catechism that baptism is necessary. But remember, in addition to the, the, the baptism of water, that's the sacrament, there's also baptism of desire and baptism by blood, which is equally valid, but the preference is for baptism of water because then you allows you to receive the other sacraments and have an increase of grace. Again, 833-288-EWTN is our toll-free number. A couple of open phone lines for you and plenty of time for your calls at 833-288-3986. Mark is in Spokane, Washington, and he said, Years ago, when the priest said, The Lord be with you, we would respond in kind and also with you. Now, when the priest says, The Lord be with you, we say, and with your spirit. Are we saying these words to the priest? Because it seems to me that the priest and congregation are, as a whole, praying for everyone present in one comprehensive prayer. The Lord be with you and with your spirit. If we, the priest and the congregation, are indeed praying for all who are there, what is meant by spirit as as distinguished from the person? Well, even though everyone's praying together, the congregation and the priest celebrant, there is a distinction that's very important that's going on there. The priest is not just leading the congregation. He's also representing them to God. And as the priest, you know, he has a priestly spirit because of holy orders that he received on the day of his ordination when he was made an altar Christus. So that's why the proper, um, more accurate translation of, of the typical Latin text uh, and with your spirit, what the congregation is saying, and with the spirit of the priest who is leading us, who is representing us, and who in a sense is offering us up with the bread and wine uh, before God the Father. So it's not just that the priest happens to be one of the faithful, he is, but he also has a very particular and singular role as the, the celebrant who is priest victim. Uh, next up is Stephen in Cincinnati, Ohio, listening on Sacred Heart Radio. Stephen, you are on with Father Trujillo. Hi, Father. Um, I, I've read the germ about the when, if, when, and if the Book of Gospels is placed on the altar at the beginning of Mass. We have a new pastor. Uh, we do have a very we have life size crucifix behind the altar, which is great on the wall. But the, our new pastor removed the crucifix off the altar and put up a lucite stand in the center of the altar. So when the procession comes in, the Book of Gospels is placed vertically on the altar. Um, is, is, is there something I can look up about the rubrics? Because the germ really doesn't say how the Book of Gospels is placed. Yes, that, that, that's correct. It doesn't say horizontal or vertical, but it does say in the germ that there should be a crucifix on the altar for the priest to see. So I would use my you know, sense of uh, deduction, and I don't, I'm not um, Sherlock Holmes, but I would say if there's a, the crucifix is there, you know, it, it, it should necessitate that the, the gospel book lay flat. Now, I know there were places where, you know, there was the tradition of propping it up, putting it in a stand, um, and that was to give prominence to the, to the gospel. But I think because the gospel book is placed on the altar, whether it's flat or standing up, and that it's incensed, and that it's you know given pride of place, I don't think it's by necessity that you have to have it standing up. The fact that it's processed in and, and uh, given that 
reverence and, and incense, you know, if, if incense is being used. But you're, you are correct. It does not say in the general instruction, should it be horizontal or vertical? Does that help, Stephen? Yes, thank you. You're welcome. Thank you for the phone call today. Next up is Tommy. He's in Knoxville, Tennessee, listening on iHeartRadio. Tommy, thanks for holding. Welcome to the program. Hey, hey, Father. Hey, uh, hey Jack. Um, Father, I had a couple questions uh, about Christmas. And I was, okay. I was praying the rosary at lunch, and it was um, the, the third set of nativity. And I kind of always thought, like, Jesus was born in like, a stable with animals in a manger, and, but it says he was born in a cave. And and I was curious, was he where was he born? And also, when did the shepherds and magi come? Did they come, like, Christmas morning, or was it weeks down the, down the road? And also, the Christmas tree, is there anything taken with the Christmas tree? And is it bad luck to keep it up too long or too early? Okay, you got a lot, of, a lot of food on the plate, as we would say. Um, you know, the, the, again, with the translations, we have to remember that the the Gospels were originally written in Greek, then translated by Saint Jerome into Latin, and then later, you know, in the vernacular, like we have in our English, in the American Bible, and and so forth. Um, the the word that's used can be both representative of a manger, as as depicted today. But also a cave can be a manger. A manger is basically a place where animals were being fed. Um, you know, so whether or not it looks like the traditional Christmas crash that St. Francis of Assisi made popular, uh, we don't know what the exact manger or where the nativity took place looked like. We, we know where uh, uh, a pious tradition tells us it, it was located. But what did it look like? No one had a picture of, or no one took a selfie <laughs> so that we could see that. So I'm not, I have no trouble with people when they're decorating, making it look more cave like or making it look more um, mangerish in, in a sense, like, like, like a barn. Fact is, there are animals there. There was hay. Uh, it's where Mary had to go because there was no room uh, at the inn. In terms of the, of the shepherds, um, Again, we don't know exactly how long, how far away they were. We know that the angels uh, told them to go. Uh, some could have got there right away. Obviously, Mary, you know, ask anyone who just had a, a baby, especially uh, outside of modern times, uh, you need a little time to recover. So I, I don't think Mary had Jesus, and then they, they hightailed it out of there. Um, you know, no, newborn baby, new mother. Uh, it's going to take a little while before you get get up and go because obviously uh, both mom and new child uh, need some extra care. Um, but at some point they did have to leave because Herod won the, the baby um, murdered. And so then they had to depart and flee into Egypt. But um, again, when the exact time, we don't know. You know, was it a couple of days, a couple of weeks? All right. That's something for the... Um, the archaeologists and historians to figure out is not necessarily a, a biblical or doctrinal uh, concern. Thank and I forgot the other question he asked. What was what was the other one, Tommy? About the Christmas tree. Oh, yeah, that's a tradition that comes from Germany. Um, it's certainly very proper. Pope Benedict, okay, uh, of happy memory, had one in Rome. I remember when Father Brigente and I were over there with the confraternity gathered clergy. We saw the little Christmas tree in his window uh, when he was uh, living at the Apostolic Palace there. Um, 
you know, how long you leave it up is up to you as long as it's safe. You've got a real tree uh, and you're and, and it's not turning into a fire hazard. Um, you can keep up to February 2nd. Uh, liturgically, you know, uh, Christmas season ends in the in the ordinary form with the baptism of Jesus. Extraordinary form, it went to the feast of the presentation. So uh, how long you leave it up in your home is up to you. In church, uh, they t- t- liturgically would like it out after the baptism. Um, but I know some priests still leave it up because it's not something that's forbidden. It's just that that's you want it up up until at least uh, the baptism of our Lord. Uh, Jason is a first-time caller in the great state of Michigan listening on Holy Family Radio. Jason, just a couple minutes left with Father Trujillo. What's your question today? Uh, Father, I, I wondered if there was a difference in the effectiveness of prayer uh, between praying through Mary to Christ and praying directly to Christ to go to God. The difference in the effectiveness between those two prayers? I wouldn't say there's a difference of effectiveness because you're both going to the same ultimate source. Mary's going to Jesus, you're going to Jesus. Um, so it's not that his, his mother's going to you know, have more, more uh, effectiveness. However, I know myself, you know, if, if parishioners you know, went to my mom and then my mom asked me on their behalf, uh, being remember, Jesus is God and man. He's got a human nature and divine nature, and so there's this there's an affinity for his mother from his human nature. Although he is God, he's also man. So it's not by necessity that uh, we go to Mary, but it certainly it, it makes sense. And you know, he's not going to be offended by that. And uh, and you know, at the wedding feast of Cana, it was Mary who interceded on behalf of, of the couple there. So it's not that things, if you go to pray to our Lord directly, he's not going to listen. But I think, you know, it's his mom. <laughs> you know, <laughs> he is God, but it is his mother. Father, would you leave us with a blessing? Amen. On behalf of our host, Father John Tregilio, our producer, Michael McCall, call screener Matt Kubensky, and our social media maven, Mr. Jeff Burson. I'm Jack Williams. Thanks for a great start to another week of EWTN's Open Line. Back at it tomorrow. Until we get together then, God bless.